Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Alex Lawson, Executive Director of the group Social Security Works, who talks about current negotiations in the U.S. Senate on proposals to expand Medicare, Medicaid, and to lower prescription drug prices. James Early, a former executive at the Smithsonian Institution, who discusses recent protests in Cuba amid an economic crisis and the U.S. response. And Rob Ritchie, president and CEO of FairVote, who assesses how ranked choice voting performed when it was used in the New York City Democratic mayoral primary election on June 22nd. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. More than 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, Eastern Germany has become a bastion of far-right anti-immigrant politics. The far-right Alternative for Germany Party, or AFD, has a strong base in five eastern states where it challenges the mainstream conservative Christian Democratic Union coalition of outgoing German Chancellor Angela Merkel. AFD has little support in the rest of Germany in contrast to the more popular Green Party, which is second in national polls. Political observers see Eastern Germany as its own entity with a strong authoritarian past and working-class frustration over declining industry and foreign ownership of factories. Foreign Policy magazine observed that in a tight contest for Chancellor this September, far-right voters in Eastern Germany could swing the election. The extremist right-wing movement emerged in 2014 along with the rise of the anti-Islamic Pegida movement. Rising hostility toward immigrants coincided with the influx of Middle Eastern refugees in 2015 and 2016. In 2017, the AFD won its first seats in a federal election from Eastern German regions. Many East Germans have been increasingly frustrated by lower wages and higher unemployment than is the norm in the rest of Germany. In early July, President Joe Biden launched an aggressive antitrust campaign focusing on the effect of highly concentrated industries like high-tech on workers and consumers. Biden signed a sweeping executive order with 72 provisions stretching across the American economy, affecting a large number of industries from healthcare to agriculture. One provision will make it easier for American consumers to purchase hearing aids without a prescription. By itself, the order on hearing aids could save individual consumers several thousand dollars. The executive order also requires hospitals to be more transparent about their billing and gives farmers the ability to decide how to repair their own heavy equipment rather than allowing manufacturers to dictate who can. Biden has assembled a team of progressive advisors on antitrust matters. They include White House advisor Tim Wu, author of The Curse of Bigness, and Federal Trade Commission Chairwoman Lena Kahn. New York University economist Thomas Philippin asserts that the lack of fair competition in the U.S. economy costs the average American family $5,000 annually. Billionaire Mackenzie Scott, the ex-wife of Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, has quickly become the buzz of big philanthropy. 
Over the last 11 months, she's given over $8 billion in no-strings-attached gifts to nonprofit groups across the country. Scott announced a new round of $2.74 billion in gifts in June to historically underfunded groups. Scott, whose net worth has doubled since her divorce as her Amazon stock soared, maintains her privacy. She's chosen not to establish a foundation which would require public disclosure of its activities. Instead, she makes her grant announcements via blog posts on Medium and relies on a small group of consultants, including the nonprofit consulting firm Bridgespan Group, to select potential grantees. The average gift is $11 million. Although Scott has given to arts and cultural organizations in support of racial justice and gender equity, she's remained silent on Amazon and its role in driving economic inequality. Maribel Mori, founding executive director of the Miami Institute for the Social Sciences, observed, it's really critical for any philanthropist to address the inequities of how their wealth was created. If you want to have a leading voice in addressing inequality, she argued, you have to address Amazon's profit maximization in the private sector. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. After months of debate and negotiations, Democrats on the Senate Budget Committee agreed to a $3.5 trillion infrastructure package that includes an important expansion of Medicare that will cover dental, hearing, and vision, as well as strengthening social safety net programs, creating a national paid family and medical leave program, funding free universal preschool for all three- and four-year-olds, and extend the child tax credit expansion that was part of the COVID relief bill passed earlier this year. This set of proposals is expected to be voted on using reconciliation, the process Democrats can use to bypass a Republican Party filibuster. A separate, bipartisan $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that funds the repair and rebuilding of the nation's roads and bridges is planned to be voted on separately. Your reporter spoke with Alex Lawson, Executive Director of Social Security Works. Here he talks about the proposed expansion of Medicare and other programs in the infrastructure package that could be the largest expansion of federal programs since FDR's New Deal and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. The beautiful part of, uh, of what Francis Perkins and FDR uh, created with the New Deal and the Social Security Act is they understood that it's actually it's an ongoing process. Every generation has to do its part. When FDR signed the Social Security Act into law, he said this act is a cornerstone that we're building on. Uh, and that's what we're doing right now with these expansions. We're not going to get everything. Uh, we want to get as much as possible, but we keep building uh, a more and more just system that delivers economic security for people. And we know that you can't have real economic security without health care. If people get sick and go bankrupt because of that, there's no economic security there. That's why we want to expand Medicare 
Uh, we want to improve and expand Medicare to cover everyone in this country. What we're talking about in the Senate right now is sort of a step towards that. You know, we want to bring it down as low as possible. What is being discussed right now in, in D.C. is lowering the age from 65 to 60. We get inundated with messages from people telling us their story of hanging on until Medicare, until they turn 65. People don't go and get things checked out because they know that if it is a cancer diagnosis, for example, they don't have any care that they can get. So what's the point in knowing? And you can see that in the numbers. You can see that reflected uh, in the massive spike that happens right at 65. That's because people don't have the security before then. So we want to expand it down as far as possible. Right now, what they're talking about is 60. But we also know that Medicare, traditional Medicare on its own, has uh, some problems. It has some holes in it. Um, most of them put there by industry so that they can sell their wares. Uh, so it doesn't cover vision, hearing, and dental, which makes absolutely no sense. Dental care is health care. Uh, vision, hearing, that's health care. So we want to add those benefits in. Uh, and we also, something that's not in the in the press as much, but is, is super important, is another thing is an out-of-pocket cap on Medicare, uh, on traditional Medicare, so that people aren't faced with that 20% uh, or they need to buy another insurance product, Medigap, um, to cover any sort of uh, liability from a catastrophic cost. So let me put that in plain English. If we add dental... Um, people could go in, and, and in this country, they could be facing you know, $100,000 worth of dental work, uh, and if we don't cap out-of-pocket costs for them, uh, they could be on the hook for 20% of that. Uh, it also is critical because without that out-of-pocket cap, too many people in this country are locked into Medicare Advantage. They don't have the choice uh, to transfer over to traditional Medicare if they want because Medigap, the insurers don't have to offer them the coverage after they initially sign up. So that's another one that we're really interested in adding there. As most of our listeners understand, the Senate is evenly divided. 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans. Vice President Kamala Harris would be the tiebreaker. So you need all Democrats on board to get this through the reconciliation process. Joe Manchin the U.S. Senator, who's a Democrat from West Virginia, he's hemmed and hawed, but he's also said that he would only vote for this if it was fully funded, if this package of new benefits is fully funded. How is this paid for, Alex? Simple fact is, just by making uh, wealthy the wealthy and corporations pay their fair share in a variety of ways, generally in Washington, D.C., they really, senators make a big uh, stink about paying for stuff when it's for the people. When it's for the rich, they just give it to them. They don't ever, you never, or war, you never hear about, how are we going to pay for that bomb that we're throwing at someone? They never, we never hear that question. Uh, but in this case, it is paid for, and there are a lot of proposals out there, and it's sort of doing two things. Uh, one of them is providing these benefits that the American people deserve, that we have earned by building this country. Uh, and that is what we're going to demand and get. And at the same time, we're going to pay for it 
by uh, saying to the plutocrats, the rich and Wall Street and the corporations, that they can't get away with paying less taxes uh, than the rest of us. You know, they, the, the billionaires who are launching themselves into space, some of them pay zero in taxes. Uh, Jeff Bezos is now worth $200 billion or something like that. That is not because they've earned that money or built that wealth. That is because the system, the structure in this country is tilted so that there's an upward redistribution of wealth. They're li- literally picking our pockets. That's where their money comes from. That was Alex Lawson, executive director of the group Social Security Works. Learn more about the proposed expansion of Medicare and Medicaid by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In a rare public display of dissent, thousands of Cubans took to the streets last week to protest the island nation's shortage of food, medicine, electricity blackouts, and a spike in coronavirus infections. Cuba's economy already straining under the weight of the 60-year U.S. economic embargo, has worsened over the past two years due to the coronavirus pandemic that has all but closed down the Caribbean island's important tourism industry. Trump imposed sanctions that ended remittances from Cuban family members living in the U.S. and the collapse of Venezuelan oil subsidies. After the demonstrations, Cuba's government reportedly arrested hundreds of protesters and shut down the island's internet. U.S. politicians from both political parties predictably responded to the protests by calling for the ouster of Cuba's communist government, ignoring Washington's prominent role in Cuba's economic crisis. Miami's Republican mayor, Francis Suarez, called on President Biden, who recently labeled Cuba as a failed state, to pursue military intervention, declaring that airstrikes are an option that have to be explored. During the 2020 presidential campaign, Biden had pledged to renew engagement with Cuba and roll back Trump's sanctions. But only now, in response to the protests, is his administration taking initial steps to review U.S.-Cuba policy. Your reporter spoke with James Early, the former director of cultural studies and communication at the Smithsonian Institution and a frequent visitor to Cuba. Here he discusses the Cuban protests the nation's economic crisis, and the U.S. response. The term has been used that these are, quote-unquote, unprecedented public protests. And I think that's an accurate description that reflects the unprecedented uh, economic constraints and desperation that has not been seen since the fall of the Soviet Union uh, during the special period uh, in Cuba. Uh, by way of statistical comparison, which is not really a reliable one uh, in terms of making a a moral or a political decision. Uh, the protests against the government, explicitly against the Communist Party, calling for the resignation of President Diaz Canal Bermudez, with whom I've spent some time over the last uh, four years, uh, is from a very small percentage of the population. But their objective material concerns are not to be dismissed. Uh, but many of them are in coordination with the U.S. State Department and with right-wing Cubans in Miami, many of them terrorists, documented to be terrorists, who shot down airplanes in past years, and um, I guess some of them are still alive who may have been involved in the Bay of Pigs invasion under the Kennedy administration. Uh, And then there's, I would say, the majority of the population, which has been also in uh, 
major public manifestations over the last week and support from a patriotic point of view. Some of them just everyday citizens who complain and critique their government, uh, but who uh, don't want interference, who want Cubans to resolve their own affairs, as Cuba is a very proud nation uh, since its defeat of Spanish colonialism uh, dating back uh, to the 19th century. Uh, and then there are communists and socialists, and there are debates within the Cuban Communist Party, within the citizenry, and within the government. It's important for a U.S. audience to really take a close look on our own as individuals, either with our facility in Spanish or reading whatever English documents we can put our hands on online, and there are many things to, to examine. I would just transition here by saying that uh, during that period now, 10 years back, President Raul Castro indicated that uh, this U.S. blockade was really killing them. But if it were removed tomorrow, it was a question of whether the socialist revolution would survive uh, because of the errors and failures that the Cubans themselves have committed. Uh, I would venture to say that is a very refreshing perspective on the part of stewards of governance, but it is not an excuse uh, for the government not delivering uh, for the basic needs and aspirations of its people whatever its external opposition might be, ultimately stewards of governance are responsible uh, for facilitating those needs. So I think this presents a more complex narrative, uh, one that is not impenetrable, but one that is not a simplified notion uh, pre presented by particularly liberal mainstream press here who takes, event, again, that uh, Cold War anti-communist obstacle that uh, the poor Cubans are suffering under this oppressive government. James, I did want to ask you this. Recently, the mayor of Miami has suggested that the United States should consider conducting airstrikes against Cuba. You also have politicians like Florida Senator Marco Rubio calling for harsher sanctions against Cuba at this time of economic crisis there and labeling Joe Biden as being soft on socialism. The United States and its policies in Cuba are driven primarily by presidential politics in Florida. And I wondered if you'd briefly comment on that. How hateful, uh, how absurd, uh, how arrogant uh, uh, about bombing another country, which would cause an outward migration, uh, which the Biden-Harris administration has already announced as a primary goal, do not get in boats and try to come to the United States, uh, because the United States is not living up to its bilateral accord with the Cuban government to provide a lottery of 20,000 visas a year in which a more normal, orderly um, out-migration might occur. And this is a relationship that uh, we have with many countries of the world, not just in this hemisphere. Uh, they are starving the Cuban people uh, in abstract notions of freedom and democracy in order to overthrow uh, their sons and the Cuban sons and daughters who are members of the Communist Party and who are members of the government. This is our responsibility uh, from this side uh, to take hold of our government and get back within the protocols of nations and where people feel it is legitimate to carry on ideological and political debate and to critique the Cubans, do so, but do so within the protocols accepted by nations since the 1947 founding of the UN. It has been a long haul for nations to come accords and try to maintain those accords for a peaceful 
challenge of where people differ. So I would leave your listening audience with that, and uh, thank you for this opportunity to present some perspectives that I would, again, urge people, take your own initiative and be earnest in trying to discern what is our obligation here in the United States. That was James Early, a former executive at the Smithsonian Institution and a frequent visitor to Cuba. For more news and analysis of Cuba's economic crisis and the recent protests, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Ranked choice voting, that is allowing voters to cast their ballots for several candidates in their order of preference, was used for the first time in the Democratic mayoral primary election in New York City on June 22nd. If a voter's first choice candidate didn't receive enough votes to win, their votes were then allocated to their second choice candidate, then third choice candidate, and so on until a victor emerged. Because there were some headline-grabbing problems with the New York City primary election, many commentators blamed the new system, when the problems, in fact, had nothing to do with the ranked-choice voting system itself. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Rob Ritchie, founding president and CEO of FairVote, a nonprofit group that advocates for legislation authorizing the use of ranked-choice voting at all levels of government in the U.S., Over the past 29 years, Ritchie has seen growing acceptance of the RCV system, with more progress on the horizon. Here he talks about New York City's recent primary election and the future of ranked choice voting. Back when we started, um, the nature of the problem was defined differently. I think the major parties were seen as as hip-locked at the time. There was a, a, a belief that we really needed you know, third parties and, and energy from outside the parties. And of course, some people still feel that uh, for sure. But there's, I think, a greater belief today that the parties are deadlocked, gridlocked, right, polarized, and are pretty distinct in people's uh, understanding of them. And they can't work together. And so in, in both instances, I think the electoral system was a core reason for the politics that was being created that was troubling. But I think the the where we are today, I think, is is more widely creating a belief that we need to change the system. So just to be clear, you're saying early on, it was like the two parties were Tweedledum and Tweedledee, and now it's like they're very different, but either way, there's a lot of reason to. Yeah, and it's still tied to kind of the deficiencies of binary politics and binary choice in a politics where conventional wisdom suppresses candidate energy and and political thought. And I think that's so much tied to these statutory uh, laws we have about how we vote that can change. And that's what we have worked on. We've we've done a range of things about our electoral process over the years. We had a big role in, in instigating the National Popular Vote Plan on the Electoral College and getting the idea out there that we could try to get all 16 year olds registered to vote before they turned 18 and were able to vote. And, you know, some other, I think, important ideas. But the electoral system has always been central. And I think what we've seen these last five years is is it can win at the highest levels. You know, we have two states using it for presidential elections now, uh, U.S. Senate elections. Uh, we're up to more than 50 cities and states that are using it around the country. And of course, New York City just, just used it. And I know Maine is one of them. What's the other state? 
Alaska, which will use it for the first time for the for their federal elections in 2022 and then presidential elections in 2024. I was interested in talking to you because there were definitely problems with the mayoral, you know, Democratic primary election in New York City, but they didn't seem to have anything to do with the new form of voting, at least to me, but that's what got blamed. It sort of became the scapegoat, I thought. But I guess from data that you have, actual data, it was a big success. Is that right? Absolutely. It's a great case where uh, the fundamentals of the election were exceptionally strong. You know, voters handled the new system well. They responded to exit polls enthusiastically. The, the outcome on who won and lost was just phenomenal in the sense of creating the conditions where change could happen. So uh, for instance, women have, have never had uh, more than a third of seats on the city council. They currently have only 14 out of 51. And when the dust settles, they're going to have 29 seats, more than double. And an ma- absolute majority of the council will be women of color, most of whom are under 40. I think a lot of people could run because they had ranked risk voting. There was no one telling them, you know, wait your turn. And, uh, you know, the best candidates could emerge out of these fields and form coalitions and, and connect with voters. And the, the number of people that voted in for mayor in the primary this year was 25% more than how many had voted in 2013, the last competitive mayoral race. Now, can you make a connection directly to ranked choice voting? It seems like that would be a little bit hard to make. Is that what you're saying? We do think so. I think, you know, ranked choice voting creates a politics of engagement. I mean, the way you win with ranked choice voting is as as a candidate is just engage with more voters. And for voters, the incentive is to learn about more candidates. And it's just through that cycle, which is uh, we call a virtuous cycle, um, you know, that I think it creates just overall more interest. And you think of it not just for mayor, but, you know, all these down ballot races, right? There were a number of competitive elections. So way down at the city council level, there were city council candidates driving turnout and encouraging people to participate who usually wouldn't in this kind of election. What's next? Are there other states that are teed up to embrace uh, ranked choice voting like the two that already have? Yeah, ranked choice voting is on a really exciting role from our perspective. You know, in, in the last few years, it's won on every, almost every ballot it's been on. It lost in Massachusetts, but it won in three other statewide ballots that had to win twice in Maine. You know, the last 10 cities that have voted on it have voted yes by an average of more than two to one. We've got two more cities at least voting this November. We've got uh, 24 cities using ranked choice voting for the first time in November. 21 cities in Utah that are using it have never used it, and then two in Utah that have. So you're starting to see this expansion into uh, just a whole mix of states. Four states passed bills that advanced ranked choice voting. And in Congress, there's legislation, uh, the the S-1 bill that has a full package of electoral reforms and and pro-voting rights measures has two provisions on ranked voting. One, for instance, that would require all new voting equipment to be, have to be ready to run ranked voting. I think that um, we're on just a very positive trajectory. That was Rob Ritchie, founding president and CEO of FairVote. Learn more about ranked choice voting by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPPM in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, WDRT in Viroqua, Wisconsin, KRFY in Sandpoint, Idaho, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikita. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.